But really glad you guys are here. Um, our guest speaker today is uh, Dr. Carl Caluza. And uh, Carl is a, is a good friend. I've known him now for about eight years, I believe. Met him uh, on a mountain biking trip. And there's something kind of cool and kind of comforting mountain biking with the doctor, uh, just to have him there, if you could keep up with him. That's the caveat. Um, but, uh, but Carl's been here at, at River West with his family for uh, the last 12 years. Um, and uh, it, you know, his wife, Amy, has two boys, Kate and Quinn, you know, just a great family. And they love the Lord. They love serving, and I know he'll be serving us just by what he's presenting today. Uh, Carl is the, uh, the physician for the Blazers, and so this is kind of a good news, bad news thing. He travels with the team, and if the Blazers were still in the playoffs, he would not be here. Um, but he's been traveling, he's been exhausted, but he made time for this, which I'm thankful that he is uh, spending his time with us today. And uh, I will say this too. I love, I love the way Carl thinks. I love spending time with him out of his doctor's office. You know, anytime I get time with him, I, I leave feeling encouraged, equipped, challenged, just to be a better man. It's one of those sharpening kind of relationships, a better man, better husband, better father. Um, so I enjoy those times. So he's going to share with us. Now, here's the deal. Lots of times when we have guest speakers, you know, they're just, they're, they're, they're spending the whole time talking. Carl wants interaction. He wants you to ask the hard question. He want, wants to interact with you on all these different topics uh, that we'll be presenting. So uh, we need to do that, okay? And spend some time around the table discussing things as well. So having said all that, Carl, come on up. Welcome. Glad you're here. Good morning. Uh, let's do a microphone check. Everybody hear me in back okay? All right. Uh, thanks for having me. I have done two men's breakfasts at this church building in the past, one 13 years ago and one 11 years ago, at which time it was a different congregation. So it's, thanks for inviting me back. It's nice to be back. Uh, uh, one ground rule before we start, this is from my attorney. Um, I cannot dispense medical advice to someone who's not my patient, and I shouldn't be seeing patients in front of a large audience. So if you have questions, if we can all just assume that you're asking for a friend, then that, that gets around <laughs> that part. Uh, I want to go through a little bit of scripture that gets at the heart of what I'm hoping to accomplish this morning. And what I would like everybody to be able to leave with is one or two things that you're changed as a result of being here this morning. So if I can give you one or two things that you're changing either to start doing or stop doing, and the heart behind it, the why, then mission accomplished for me. So if I didn't give that to you, come and talk to me afterwards, and I'll see if I can beat it into your head later. Uh, let's go to 1 Corinthians on the slide, Brenton, please. And this is, this is going to be the heart of what we're going over this morning. And before we read this, I'd like to start with a confession. It is nearly impossible for me to be up speaking in front of a group and get it right. Because what, what I should be doing is to try and serve all of you, right? To equip you better, to encourage you somehow, to give you knowledge that you don't have. And you might think, well, if that's not what you're doing, what else would you be doing? Um, so partially, I'd like you all to think that I did a good job, right? But that's, that's become self-serving. And unfortunately, I'm even more depraved than that because I largely don't care if you think I did a good job. I want to think I did a good job myself. And so a quick prayer for me that I would be able to stay on task in serving you instead of serving myself as we're going along this morning. 
1 Corinthians 6.19. This is uh, Paul speaking. Do you not know that your bodies are temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. So we're going to talk about why was a price required in the first place? And subsequently, what was the price? Okay. You were bought at a price. You are not your own. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And that's what we're going to spend most of the time on this morning is assuming that you buy in that a price was required and that we know what the price is. We owe a debt. How can we therefore honor God with our bodies? Let's go to Romans 1 next, and this will help to explain why the price was required in the first place. This is also Paul. God gave them up to their desires. This is, this is man. This is us. God gave us up to our desires, and we worshiped things which God made and not God. So this is, this is the root of it. We are all at some point sinful. This is part of the nature of sin. It's not the entire nature of sin, but it's part of it. That God made all of creation, and we busily work at playing in creation and worshiping creation instead of worshiping God. So I'd like you to just imagine, what is it that you look forward to? What is it that you're striving for? What is it that makes you anxious? What is it that makes you proud? Likely, we're talking about things of the world. The amount of time that I spend watching the Portland Timbers exceeds the amount of time that I spend praying in a week. Okay? And that's sometimes true even if the Timbers aren't playing. Okay? The amount of time that I spend exercising greatly exceeds the amount of time that I spend studying or worshiping. And timbers aren't bad, and exercising is kind of good, so we could even be worshiping good stuff of creation, but if we're dealing with creation instead of worshiping God, we're, we're missing the mark to an extent. And this is a universal condition. There isn't, an, there isn't a person who is an exception to this rule, with the exception of the example of Jesus. Let's go to 1 John next. So the debt is that we can't get it done on our own. Paul says that God created the law to point out to all of us that we can't follow the law. Like, we can't do it on our own. Therefore, God had to send his son to take care of this problem of the separation between God and us for us. So this is 1 John in this, the love of God was manifested among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live. We might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, so we did not earn the price. We did not earn Jesus' coming. God sent Jesus. Jesus came freely. It's a gift to us. 
And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be, be the propitiation for our sins. So propitiation is one of the tenets of grace. This is where the sin of me gets put onto Jesus, and Jesus pays the price for me. I did not earn this. This is something that I was given. That's the nature of grace, right? Um, and let's go back to 1 Corinthians again. So this... Therefore, so we've been purchased with a price. The price was Jesus died for us. We didn't earn it. So the therefore here is not us trying to earn the gift that Jesus gave. It's us saying, thank you for the gift that Jesus gave. Right? This therefore is an act of worship. So there's often like there's a worship band. We got worship stuff up here, and people describe that as worship, and it is, or at least it can be. This is a different form of worship. When you are working to honor God with your body, which has the, the Holy Spirit in it, as an act of worship, it's a way of saying thank you for the price that Jesus paid on the cross to take our sins. So, now, I'd like a little table discussion. Just brainstorm amongst yourselves. If we want to try and do this, if we want to try and honor God as an act of worship with our bodies, how do we do that? So, talk amongst yourselves, and then I'll do a little survey of the audience when you get done. Let's do about three minutes. All right. Let's, let's bring it back in. Give me, a, give me a couple of things, like common topics that came up. Was there any, were there any frequent ideas? So, okay, so food, like how, how we eat could be a way we do this. Thank you. What else do people come up with? Rest. Excellent. So this ties in a little bit with what I believe to be the most controversial of the Ten Commandments. Okay. So under the new covenant, do we still have to do the Sabbath? Nope. Other people say, Ten Commandments, duh, we have to follow all ten of the commandments. So controversial. Uh, how many hours of sleep should a man be getting in order to have adequate rest at night? Seven, eight. Anybody think more than eight? Anybody think less than seven? All right. Quick 30-second discussion now. How much sleep do you actually get? Go. All right, let's, let's turn back around this way. I'm going to guess that while there was general agreement we should be getting seven or eight hours of sleep, that as you're talking amongst yourselves, it quickly comes out that a lot of you are not getting eight hours of sleep per night, right? And so, well, well why not? Because if that would be best for you, shouldn't you do that? Except you're not doing that. And I'm going to guess that part of the reason, at least occasionally, is because you are doing something that has to do with creation, okay? And you're getting less sleep because you're honoring something in creation, which gets back to Romans 1. 
That doesn't mean you should always get eight hours of sleep. I think in general, eight hours is a nice general guideline for men. Kids need more. Kids need nine or ten hours plus a nap. And then if there's somebody with uh, gray hair that would be willing to share, I think generally sleep gets harder as you get older, right? So little kids can go to sleep and they can sleep for ten hours. If you start talking to guys in their 80s, they never sleep for 10 hours straight. In fact, three hours is great because your prostate wakes you up every two or three hours and you got to get up and pee. So what other themes came up uh, as far as how do, how do we honor God with our bodies? Let's talk about food a little bit. So how is it that God makes food, right? And there's some of it that we really like. Uh, so yesterday at my office, I had in the morning, somebody brought in a big box of donuts. And then somebody else had purchased in Girl Scout cookies, not the kind that, that you already make, but the kind that you bake. And we've got a toaster oven there. So people were baking cookies all afternoon. So the office smelled like donuts or cookies the entire day. And it was hard for me to resist that because it smells really good. I like, I start drooling just, just thinking about the smell now. But I kind of think that eating donuts and cookies all day long wouldn't be a good way to honor God with my body. So what general principles can we use when we're deciding how to fuel ourselves that would be honoring to God? What would be an act of worship? And this is, this is an area that's controversial. Uh, is anybody here vegetarian or vegan? So what is the definition of vegetarian? This is something that I think is interesting. Does anybody have, like, a, we kind of have a general sense that vegetarians are people that don't eat something. Yeah, like they don't eat meat. But vegetarians, sh- like, should be defined as someone that eats vegetables, right? Like, they're, they're herbivore, not carnivore or omnivore. And so the majority of the vegetarians that I take care of are cinnamon roll vegetarians. Uh, <laughs> they, they basically, they eat vegetables sometimes, but what they mostly mean is that you don't eat meat. So I think that uh, eating vegetables is one of the best things that you can put in your body. Uh, this brings into play the idea of opportunity cost with what you're eating. So have we got any business guys here that can explain opportunity cost? Any economists that can do a better job of this than me? All right, please share with us. Every decision you make, you give up something, whether it's time, stress, money. If you're doing one thing, you're not doing another. If you're connected, it's going to cost you something. Perfect. So if I choose to eat a cookie, I can't be eating an apple at the same time. And if I eat both, I ate too much. And so when you're talking about food decisions, it's opportunity cost decisions over and over and over and over again. And so there are times when I think one food is better than another, but that's largely just in relation to something else. So let's talk about things that are at the high end, like what's the most valuable as ways to eat to honor God. And then let's talk about stuff that's at the bottom end. I think of this like 
green light foods, eat those, you don't have to think too much about it. And then there's some red light stuff, and we should spend a little extra time there because if you don't know what a red light food is, you might be eating it thinking it's actually good for you and being fooled by food marketing companies. So who can name off some green light foods, stuff that we should be eating on a very routine basis? Kale, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nuts and seeds, chicken. I'm going to put in a yellow light, seafood and salmon, salmon in general, green light. So healthy fats like olive oils, I'll put in the green light category. There's a fun study with people that had obesity and high cholesterol. They divided into two groups. One group had to eat 1,200 calories a day of olive oil. The other group continued their standard diet. The olive oil group had decrease in their cholesterol level and they lost weight. And every study that's ever been done on olive oil, the more of it you eat, the longer you live and the lower your risk of heart attack. So olive oil, green light food. Now, unfortunately, there's been a lot of controversy over exactly if you find a bottle of olive oil on the shelf, is it actually olive oil or not? Because there are, olive oil is a little bit more expensive to make than a lot of other oils. And so there have been some stings around that what's labeled as olive oil isn't actually olive oil. And so it's nice to know what olive oil tastes like and what it doesn't taste like to help to know that what you're purchasing at the store, you're actually getting olive oil and not canola oil that's mixed with olive oil or something like that. I don't have a good way to vet that other than I've tasted enough olive oil. It tends to taste a little bit like grass and it tends to have a peppery finish that I can go like, oh yeah, that's olive oil. Um, and so doing an olive oil tasting at some point would be a good way to help you sniff out fake olive oil in the future. Any other green light foods? I'm going to put dark chocolate on the list. The health minister of Australia was recently tasked by their federal government to figure out what would be the most cost-effective ways on a national level to improve the health of the population. Should we be doing more immunizations? Should we be doing more end-of-life care? Should we do antibiotics differently in the hospital? Should we be doing more preventive physicals? Like, what is it that would be cost-effective? And they came back after doing a significant study and said, giving everybody in the country one ounce of dark chocolate a day would be the least expensive way to dramatically improve the health of the population. So there are uh, occasional downsides to dark chocolate. It's got theobromide and theophylline in it, which is a stimulant. And so if you're sensitive to that, if you eat it too close to bedtime, you can have a little trouble sleeping. Dark chocolate's got calories in it. Let's do a, a little segue. Uh, tangent and talk about calories real quick. Who can tell me the first law of thermodynamics? Yeah, so energy can neither be created nor destroyed. So if you're putting energy in, 
It's got to go. And it can go in different ways. It can go in motion. So more energy is coming out if I'm moving than if I'm standing still. It comes out through thinking. Thinking burns energy relatively quickly. It can come out through heat. Who's got a, who's got a trigger? All right, so pellets go in the hopper. The auger feeds the pellets into the burning chamber. And the burning chamber burns the pellets, and then you get heat in your grill. Am I accurate on this so far? If you want more heat in your grill, how does that get accomplished? Okay, you turn up the thermostat. What happens when you do that? The auger goes faster, more pellets get dumped in, right? We're putting more fuel in to get more heat out. And what temperature does society like to keep rooms at? Yeah, around 72. Why is that? It's comfortable. Why is it comfortable? It's because it's the temperature that we have to do the least amount of work. Any colder than that, you got to turn the thermostat up, right? And if it gets cold enough, you start shivering. There isn't a way to burn calories faster than shivering. It's, it's the biggest calorie burn that you can do. It's dramatically higher calorie burn rate than running or sprinting, okay? What about if it's hotter in the room? What if it's 100 degrees and humid? What happens then? Yeah, you got to work on cooling yourself down because your core body temperature is increasing. That's work too. You got to dilate pores and capillaries. You got to move fluid to the skin. You got to expel the fluid through the skin. That fluid on the skin then creates evaporative cooling, which cools your core body temperature down. But that's work as well. So existing in our comfortable 72 degrees all the time is comfortable, but it's mostly comfortable because we're not having to work at all. So if you want to be able to get more pellets into your mouth because eating and drinking is fun, you got to burn more pellets off. And so um, who, who here has a wife that is colder in the same bed or the same room than they are? That's a fairly common, fairly common. It's, it's probable that their body temperature is actually lower. And so they're legitimately colder and that's one of the reasons that people that are generally colder in the same room can't eat as much. Their thermostats turn down, right? They have less energy coming out, and they therefore can't put as much in. It's not a lack of insulation. There are lots of cold, fat people, okay? And as we're talking about the foods a little bit, these green light foods that we're talking about, they help to turn the thermostat up a little bit. Eating, eating the red foods, which we should talk about next, they turn the thermostat down a little bit so that your metabolism is slower. Who here wants to eat or drink less? Yeah, so everybody, like, that's like God gave us good things to eat and good things to drink. It would be great to be able to do more of it, but if you do too much, you end up growing, right? So if you put fuel in in the form of food or drink and it's not coming out in the form of thinking or exercise or heat, what happens to it? Yeah, it gets stored for later. And we store calories in the form of fat. 
Let's talk about calories a little bit. There are 3,600 calories in a pound of fat. There's 3,600 calories in a pound of oil. And if it doesn't matter what fat we're talking about. It could be whale blubber. It could be seed oil. It could be olive oil. It could be avocado oil. But a pound of that contains 3,600 calories. So let's do a little math. If somebody's 10 pounds overweight, we're looking at 36,000 calories that they have eaten in and in the moment not used up, and over time it's gotten stored. It's thermodynamic energy that has been consumed and not yet released. How many calories do you burn if you walk one mile? A hundred calories. How many calories do you burn if you sprint one mile? One hundred calories. Now, how does that work? Like, because people are going like, I've walked and I've sprinted, and sprinted is way more work than walking is. How can it be the same? It's because when you're walking, to walk a mile takes 15 minutes, and sprinting a mile, Darren, takes you four minutes. Um, and so you're having to work for four times as long if you're walking. So the work rate's higher with sprinting. The work duration is longer with walking. So how many miles do you have to walk to work off one pound of fat? You have to walk 36 miles, like a marathon and a half about, to burn off one pound of fat. This is important to know because I have people that come into my office and they're like, I've been exercising for two weeks. I have been walking for 20 minutes a day and I haven't lost any weight at all and I'm really mad about it. And so I'm like, well, how far are you walking in your 20 minutes? And they go, I don't know. I was told to walk 20 or 30 minutes a day for exercise. And so when I actually query people, some people when they're walking for 20 minutes are doing about a quarter mile. And other people in 20 minutes can run, I don't know, how far can you run in 20 minutes? Three miles. Now, yeah, four miles for you. Um, and so the, the work rate is really important when you're trying to figure this out. So I don't like calculating exercise based upon time. I like to think of it in terms of energy expenditure. And so measuring your exercise in how many calories are going out is useful because we measure energy coming in in the terms of calories. We should measure out in terms of calories. How many calories do you burn when you ride a bicycle for a mile? It's about a third. So on a road bike, it's about 33. Mountain biking, because it's less, uh, you got the you know, shocks involved, and there's more balance involved, it's closer to 50. So you have to, to walk or run 36 miles to burn a pound of fat. You have to ride your bike over 100 miles to burn a pound of fat. This is amazing. Like, we were designed in such an awesome way that on one pound of fat, we can ride a bicycle over 100 miles. That is an amazing design. It's also a little depressing <laughs> because if you're trying to work a pound of calories that you've eaten but haven't burned off yet, you have to ride a bicycle over 100 miles. 
So let's circle back around and talk a little bit more. Um, I've got a, a food that could be green or could be red. Time to talk amongst yourselves now. Alcohol, green light, yellow light, or red light, and why? Please discuss. All right, let's bring it, let's bring it around. Was there any controversy on this one? Yeah, so people had different opinions on whether, whether alcohol generally is good for you, bad for you, or maybe somewhere in the middle. And I think that's an honest description of alcohol. So it has the potential to be green light because people who drink alcohol in moderation live longer and report being happier than people who don't drink at all. I'm going to change. Let's go to our J-curve. This is a plot on the vertical axis is risk of death. On the horizontal axis is how many drinks per day somebody has in general. And one there is someone who doesn't drink at all. So their risk of death as a teetotaler is established as one. Drinking a little bit of alcohol actually is associated with a decreased risk of death relative to not drinking at all. And generally, the, this is called the J-curve. So normally, like getting in car accidents, the curve just goes up. Like getting in a car crash is basically always bad. You're more likely to die if you get in a crash, okay? And the red light foods, which we're going to get to, all of the, like, it's just bad. There's no, there's no initial improvement and then bad later on. So if you drink too much alcohol, it's for sure bad. You can see the risk of death starts going up fairly dramatically as you drink more alcohol. For men, the bottom of the J is at about two drinks per day. Now, this is not a Pinot's glass full of an entire bottle of Pinot, right? And this is not a one-liter beer stein counted as one drink. For women, the J curve is a tighter J. So men tend to metabolize alcohol more quickly than women do. And as a result, the bottom of the J for them is at one drink per day, and the death risk goes up more sharply than it does for men with increasing alcohol intake. That's partially their livers just don't process it as well, and it's partially because they tend to be smaller. So a little bit of alcohol has the potential to be green light because it's associated with improved happiness and decreased risk of death. There was a study that came out just a couple of weeks ago, and the media titled it, Alcohol Increases Risk of Breast Cancer. And so I had a bunch of women come in and were like, oh, like, do I need to stop drinking? Like, my mom had breast cancer. Like, ah, what do I do? And... I was a little disappointed, and this was, this was reported, unfortunately, in a way that gets the most clicks, I think, as, a way, as opposed to the way that would have been the most helpful. So in the, in the study, the data showed that drinking alcohol was associated with an increased risk of breast cancer. 
And when you broke it down by alcohol type, drinking spirits was associated with about a 25% increased risk of breast cancer. Drinking beer was associated with a teeny tiny increased risk, but increased risk of breast cancer. Drinking red wine was associated with a decreased risk of breast cancer. So that would be kind of helpful to know. Like if you're a woman who's trying to make a decision about your breast health, that while drinking red wine was helpful, drinking spirits was harmful. So if I'm going to drink alcohol, maybe I should drink red wine instead of Red Bull and vodka. Um, Now, the other thing to take into consideration is most women don't die of breast cancer. Like your risk of dying of breast cancer if you're a woman is like 10% or less. Most women die of heart attack and stroke. So this J curve that the women and men have is mostly based upon alcohol intake decreasing your heart attack and stroke risk, which is what most people die of. So if you make a change there, even if it increased risk of something else, pancreatic cancer, breast cancer, we're talking about such a small overall risk of death that even if it increases cancer death risk a little bit, if it decreases heart heart attack and stroke risk death, that's still of good value if we're just talking about mortality. Now, there's potential risk with alcohol too. I've got alcoholism in my family. I have seen alcoholism destroy families. I've seen it destroy careers. I've seen it destroy bodies. People turn yellow, their liver fails, they get bloated, their mind doesn't work right, they go into a coma, and they die. So you have to make this decision in communication with your own conscience, with your spouse, looking at history in your family, maybe talking to your doctor, asking God for guidance to say, like, I've got a problem with alcohol or there's a risk, like I've got a, I've got a, there's a risk with alcohol, so I'm not going to touch it. So this is a controversial thing. And that came out, like we talked about alcohol, it was controversial. And so that's something where you've got to do a little bit of work. So when you're trying to figure out how do I honor God with my body, it may be that the way you honor God is by not drinking alcohol. Or it may be that the way you honor God is by having a glass of wine with dinner because it's good for you. And so alcohol is something that could be a green light food or it could be a red light food. Yellow light stuff comes into like, I've been mountain biking and I've had my two beers. I'm at the bottom of the J curve and I want another one. I'm still below the line at beer three. It's probably not that bad for me, but it's probably not any more good for me. That's where conscience and a little bit of prayer comes into play. So if we can just pause at that moment or just pause when somebody asks you if you want pumpkin pie, even though you've already had enough to eat, and ask, God, should I have pie? And then see if you get an answer to the prayer, see what your conscience tells you, then you can have an opportunity to honor God with your body at that point. Any questions on alcohol? Yes. Yeah, so what was Jesus' first miracle? He turned water into wine. And what did he serve at the Last Supper and say, drink this in remembrance of me? How do we know it was wine? We drink grape juice here during communion. So was he drinking grape juice or was he drinking wine? 
what time of year do we harvest grapes in Oregon? Fall, like September, right? And the place where Jesus was in Israel is further south of us. The climate is similar to San Diego. It's warmer there. So harvest happens earlier there. So harvest there happens late summer. When was the last supper happening? What time of year? Spring, during the Passover celebration. And there were no refrigerators. There was no pasteurization. And you can't keep, the way they kept grape juice drinkable was by fermenting it and turning it into wine so that it lasts until the next harvest. Otherwise, you just get rot and it's not drinkable anymore. The alcohol content of what they were drinking was probably lower than a Napa cab, um, but it was, it was for sure fermented. Um, so that's, that's part of my answer is we know Jesus drank wine, turned water into wine, and told us to drink wine. So when in doubt, I'd go with red wine. Okay. <laughs> Beer and wine have both been shown to reduce risk of heart attack and stroke. There's something in our clotting system called fibrinogen, and the beer and the wine actually change the structure of the fibrinogen so the blood doesn't clot quite as well, so it lowers your heart attack and stroke risk. The studies on spirits are less persuasive on that front, so I actually don't have good data on what's 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 the best between red wine, beer, and spirits. I'll tell you what's for sure bad is mixing spirits with fill-in-the-blank. So while tequila neat may be as good for you as beer, it may be worse. A margarita is for sure worse than beer and for sure worse than red wine. Between beer and wine, uh, beer's got a much higher carbohydrate content. It's basically bread in liquid form. And so a glass of wine and a glass of beer have the same amount of alcohol, but the beer's got bigger volume and a higher carb content. And so there's a, like, you've heard of a beer belly. The reason that you get a beer belly is because you're basically drinking loaves of bread, okay? And you store, like, thermodynamics, again, calories in, you're not using them up, they get stored in the belly. And the reason you get a beer belly as opposed to a, like, beer thighs is because carbohydrates, when they come in, are processed a little differently than fats and proteins, and the liver tends to put that fat inside your abdomen. And so you end up with belly fat as opposed to butt fat, thigh fat, arm fat associated with beer. Whereas if you just eat too many peanuts, you get bigger overall, but it doesn't tend to be belly bigger as much. There's also genetics that play a role with where you stick your fat, right? Some women that gain weight, it all goes to their butt. Some it all goes to their boobs. Some it all goes to their chin. Guys do the same thing. We just don't put as much in our boobs. Yeah. So the question is, if I'm looking at this curve right, Having four shots of tequila every day, I, I live longer than not drinking at all. Like, am I seeing this curve right? Yes. If you're a man. Okay. Yeah. 
It's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. So the question is, if I have a friend that's on a blood thinner, should they be more cautious about what, yeah, that's, a, that's something to ask your doctor, like what's the, what's the appropriate amount for me as an individual, because I've got a unique circumstance. Uh, so again, this has to be an individual question. This is population data, and population's data is helpful in certain ways, but really what you want is what is the data that's most pertinent to you as an individual, and that has to be in, answered on an individual basis. Got one more thing to talk about. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Mm, good question. So the question is, if we eat the same amount of food, do we all get the same amount of energy out of it? Absolutely not, and not even close. So there are some people that are very efficient where if they put 100 calories into their mouth, they actually extract all 100 calories close to it out of that food and end up pooping out very little. Other people put 100 calories into their mouth, and they end up pooping out 75 of the calories. They absorb very little of it. And you think, like, ooh, that doesn't, like, that, that, I'm not sure that that's, this would be a better, like, it seems like your body's doing a better job if it's extracting relatively more of the calories. Like, wouldn't you starve to death if you, if you didn't have as many calories that you absorbed? Yeah. So in the setting of a famine, absorbing a high percentage of the calories is helpful. So if you look at like Polynesian cultures where famines were common, they're really efficient at absorbing calories genetically. And if you look at Polynesian people now, they tend to be really big people as a result. We're not in a food scarcity problem presently. Okay? There are medical conditions for which you would absorb fewer calories. Celiac disease, which is an allergy to the protein gluten, which is in grains, destroys the lining of your intestines. The intestinal lining is what absorbs the calories. And so when you destroy that, you eat food, it goes through you, and you poop it out, and you didn't get the energy out of it. So you're losing the energy not through heat or motion or thinking. You're just losing it straight into the toilet. High fiber foods, so if you think of 100 calories of apple, your body has to do the work to try and unlock the calories that are in the apple, hidden between the fiber, to get it out. And that takes effort on your body's part to actually get the calories out. Celery, for instance, has calories in it, but it takes you so much work to digest it, the digestive work exceeds the caloric content. So cal celery is a negative calorie food. You actually lose weight by eating celery. You would starve to death if you tried to eat celery because it takes you more work to digest than you get out of, extracted out of it. If you do 100 calories of apple juice, it doesn't have the fiber and the ligand. You absorb almost 100% of that. Dark chocolate, interestingly, is a very calorie-dense food. It's almost pure fat, and fat has more calories per gram than anything else. So fat has 9 calories per gram, Protein and carbs only have four. So the same amount of weight of dark chocolate has more than 
twice as many calories as a pancake. But when you eat the dark chocolate, we can't absorb it very well. And so we're doing two things. Partially the fat that's in the dark chocolate, the bugs in our intestinal tract, our gut microbiome, eat it. they can eat it. And so you're nourishing the healthy bacteria in your gut, and then part of it, you're pooping out. So you get to enjoy, enjoy the dark chocolate. It improves your gut health. It improves blood pressure. It improves cholesterol. And it ends up being a much lower calorie food than you would expect because you don't absorb a lot of the calories that you're eating in. It's one of the things that makes a difference between somebody said, like, like, I don't eat anything and I gain weight. And Steve can eat whatever he wants and he never gains an ounce. And we do the same activity. Like, it doesn't seem fair, but people are, people are wired differently in that regard. Um, let's circle back to the Passover real quick. So Passover happens at full moon. So the Passover celebration, which God told the nation of Israel to celebrate for remembrance of taking them out of slavery and out of Egypt, God mandated that they celebrate the five-day celebration every year. It happened at the time of the full moon. And... When Jesus was crucified, it got dark. And it was midday. So how does it get dark at midday? There was a Roman historian named Thallus that was writing about 50 AD and described in Roman history the crucifixion of Jesus. So like they're actually this is Roman history, not Jewish history. So you're like, yes, Jesus crucified on this date. It got dark in the middle of the day. And he explained it by a solar eclipse. So up here, we've got solar eclipse. We had the eclipse here. Was that two years ago, last year? And for an eclipse, the moon gets in the way of the sun, and you end up with a dark spot on the earth. So this seems like a reasonable explanation for why it was dark in the middle of the day, because of a solar eclipse. If you can go to the full moon slide, Brenton. So on the bottom, we have solar eclipse. On the top, we have full moon. For the moon to be full, which it was because we know it was full because that's when they had Passover and Jesus was crucified the day, over, day after the Passover meal. We're talking about a full moon. How many days does it take the moon to go around the earth? Right, so 28, 28 days, lunar cycle. So you cannot have a full moon, which we know is happening, and a solar eclipse. They have to be two weeks away from each other. So we have Roman historians recording that it got dark on the day of the crucifixion, that Jesus was crucified, and don't have a valid explanation for why it got dark. And what else happens then? The curtain gets torn into the, there's some other stuff that happens. So if you're not familiar with that part of the story, go back and read it with this in mind, because I think it's a little bit more rich 
thinking about how dark it gets and that it's recorded in Roman history and that the Roman historian puts in the wrong explanation for why. Let's talk about some red light foods next. Talk amongst yourselves, what are the worst things that we can be eating? Okay, let's hear, let's hear what you came up with. I'm guessing that there's going to be a little bit more consensus here than there was on the alcohol topic. So what, what were some foods that got thrown out? Well, let's look at this superfoods list. I like everything up there, and I think it tastes good. So I'll disagree, although um, we have been habituated to having our palates bastardized. Um, a lot of kids and a lot of adults, when they come into my office, if I ask them if they think an apple tastes sweet, they say no. And the reason that they say no is because they're eating so much processed or artificially sweetened food or sugar-sweetened food that their spectrum has been shifted to the sweet side and the apple legitimately tastes sour to them. So if strawberries and apples taste not sweet to you, I think you should inspect how much sweet food you are eating otherwise. Because fruits in the Garden of Eden would have been so sweet and so appreciated. And we appreciate them relatively less because of candy and other things. What else as far as red light foods? Energy drinks. So energy drinks are associated with 26,000 emergency room visits in the U.S. each year, 2,000 seizures, and 200 deaths. So you have to have a good reason for drinking an energy drink. There are good reasons. Like if I'm driving from here to San Francisco and it's the middle of the night and I'm going to fall asleep and crash, an energy drink might be a good option at that point. I would suggest that just caffeine would be a better option. And I don't have, a, I don't have another good reason that you would drink energy drinks. So I think that's a great example of a red light food. I would, I, I've never had an energy drink. I plan to never drink one. And so knowing what I know, red light food. What else? White sugar and white flour. I agree. Red light foods. The more of those you eat, the more likely you are to be obese, depressed, and have diabetes. All those sound bad. Deep fried stuff. Deep fried stuff. This depends in part on what's being fried and what's, what oil is being used. So if you're eating at a restaurant, you can basically assume it's a red light food. Almost all restaurant fried foods is fried in soy oil. We subsidize farmers to produce soybeans. The soybeans are therefore very inexpensive to purchase and process, and therefore soy oil is very inexpensive to buy. So the reason your stuff's being fried in soy oil is not because it tastes better or because it's good for you, it's because it's cheap. And soy oil is associated with a fairly dramatic um, rise in the incidence of obesity. So unless you're trying to gain weight, I would stay away from food that's fried in restaurants. 
Now, what about frying stuff at home? And I think that it's possible a piece of fried broccoli or fried kale, fried in olive oil, has enough health benefits that it's actually good for you. So I'd say some, some foods might be yellow. Some fried foods might be yellow. Yellow light foods. Most fried foods are, are red light foods. Agreed. What else? Salt. Good. I'm glad someone brought this up. How, how much salt is recommended by the federal government we eat each day? 2,000 milligrams. How much does the average American eat? So 3,500. Interestingly, if you look at the data on death, eating 3,000 milligrams of sodium a day, it's a, there's, a, there's a little bit of a J curve with sodium intake, and the bottom of the J is at 3,000 milligrams a day, not 2,000 milligrams a day. So why do they recommend 2,000 milligrams a day? It's because they're assuming that everyone's going to cheat, right? And so they've just set the bar low, knowing that most people are going to jump over it. And so instead of setting it at the perfect spot, which would be 3,000, they set it at 2, so that when people are cheating, they're, they're, they're finishing about right. I don't like inaccuracy like that. I like to try and be precise when precision is easy. And so this is one where you can be fairly precise. Now, there are certain heart or kidney conditions where less than 3,000 milligrams would be beneficial. If you are eating food that does not contain a label, right? So think of things that come from a garden or a fish that you catch or an animal that you kill. You can basically put as much salt on your food as you want, and you don't have to worry about your sodium intake. If you are eating food that is made in a factory, you are going over your sodium intake whether you're putting salt on your food or not. There is more sodium in one slice of bread than there is on all the salt you'd ever want to put on roasted vegetables or on french fries for that matter. It's cooked into the food and once it's cooked in, you can't get it out and the amount that you sprinkle on top is inconsequential in comparison. What about other... Yes. So let's talk about meat. Uh, how about the meat eaters video? So this is what if meat eaters acted like vegetarians. It's got the taste and the texture of an actual cucumber with none of the cucumber. Eating plants makes your body way too alkaline, which will definitely kill you. Do you really want that? All you need is some meat to be healthy and thrive. You get everything you need from meat. Beef is loaded with carbs. Orcas are even more spiritually evolved than humans, and they only eat seal meat. So that means humans should only eat meat because it's the most spiritually evolved diet because of orcas. Plants give off oxygen, why would you eat them? Do you even know how dangerous deer are when you're driving your car? If you don't kill and eat deer first, you basically want people to get into car accidents. The world's a much safer place if we eat the animals that could eat us. Broccoli? That's what my food eats. That's my food's food, and I don't appreciate you eating that. You should eat Siberian tigers to help them go extinct. 
It makes it so that they can live on through you and your children for generations to come. The best chance for the survival of their species is for us to kill and eat them. That coconut was gonna grow into a palm tree. Why would you eat that? I could never eat plants that are raised in crowded farms in inhumane living conditions with less than one square inch of space per stalk stuck in the soil against their will. Have you ever thought about going meat eater to help save the planet? Or do you just not care about the earth? Have you seen the Kale Spiracy documentary? You gotta see it. It's so heartbreaking seeing how all the plants are killed and the deforestation from the plant farming and unsustainable farming practices. Kale farming is the number one destroyer of the environment. Once you see it, you'll never eat plants again. As he redundantly repeated his emotionally charged nutritional opinions at me, I was instantly convinced to become a meat eater. JP was the most illogical, condescending person I've ever met. Saying something like that's just a symptom of being overly alkaline. It just makes you mean right, and you that's can't good. think straight. Thank you. <laughs> so most meat is going to fall into yellow territory. It's partially because of opportunity cost. So we talked about fish earlier. The more fish you eat, the smarter you are. So fit, eating fish, feeding fish to your kids, associated with higher IQ. Eating fish while you're pregnant, associated with higher IQ. People worry about mercury a little bit with fish, so fish consumption has gone down, especially among pregnant women, where it would actually be the most beneficial. There have been two studies on this. One was in the Great Lakes study, where mercury levels are pretty high around the Great Lakes because of the industrial production. And the more fish people ate out of the Great Lakes, the lower their risk of heart attack and stroke, and the higher their IQ. This was repeated on a much larger study. Daniel, how do you say the country in the Seychelles or Seychelles? Seychelles? Okay. You've surfed there, probably? No, not yet. Okay. So the Seychelles, they've got no industrial mercury. They don't have enough industry there to produce mercury in the environment. So the only mercury that they get is from eating ocean-caught fish. And fish is their major protein source. And the more fish people ate there, the higher their mercury levels. In fact, 20 times higher at the highest quotient of fish consumption than the lowest. So eating more fish reliably increased mercury levels. That's basically a fact. However, there was no adverse health outcome of the higher mercury levels. People lived longer and had higher IQ the more fish they ate. So ignore the mercury, eat the fish, it's good for you. Other forms of meat fall into generally yellow category because of opportunity cost. So if you have an opportunity to eat something, the superfood list that I put up earlier and the green light foods would be the best choice. So I don't think that pork or chicken are inherently bad. They're just not quite as good as broccoli and kale, and they're not quite as good as salmon, and they're not as good as dark chocolate. They're better than white flour, white rice, and sugar. And so that's something that can be eaten frequently and in moderation. There's one caveat with meat is that processed meats, so anything that's had preservatives added to it, i.e. anything that's coming from a company, 
is, or a factory, is associated with an increased risk of cancer and death. So something that you could go kill and cut up and eat, fine. Something that's been killed and cut up and mixed with other stuff, red light food. Now, can you eat hot dogs occasionally? Sure. Are they good for you? Never. Does that answer the, the chicken and pork question? Okay. So, so ba okay, good. So what about bacon? Because bacon tastes really good. What is bacon? It comes from pig. It's the belly of the pig. It's got some meat, but lots of fat in there. And pork fat that's been rendered is lard. Interestingly, lard consumption's never been associated with a bad health outcome. Yet soy oil has. So people have been eating lard for forever, and soy oil is a relatively new, um, new product that we've figured out how to make. And bacon in its, its rawest form is pork belly. I don't have any objection to. However, when you take pork belly and turn it into bacon, it's mixed with nitrites and nitrates so that you don't get botulism from it. And those are essentially, you can think of those like antibiotics because they keep bacteria and fungus from growing. And what happens when you put antibiotics into your mouth? Chew, swallow. What lives inside you in your guts is your microbiome. And it looks like eating those processed foods that have the preservatives, i.e. antibiotics in them, isn't good for the microbiome of your gut. And whatever's bad for your guts is ultimately bad for you. So we see increased risk of cancer, increased risk of death, bacon's included. Now, well, what about nitrite-free bacon? So this is common. I wish I had come up with this marketing thing myself because it's genius. They will say, we've got pork belly and celery juice, and it's nitrite-free. Well, guess what's in celery juice? Nitrites. And actually more nitrites than if you put it in medicinally. Because celery contains different amounts of nitrites by weight. And you don't want to put in too little, because if somebody eats your bacon and gets botulism and dies, then you get sued. And you know exactly how much to sprinkle in if you're using a medicinal powder amount. But if you're putting celery juice in, because the amount varies, you have to put in the higher quotient of it. So nitrite-free bacon actually contains more nitrite than regular bacon does. So anything that's labeled as nitrite-free always has nitrite in it, and it probably has more. Look at your ingredient list on that. Yeah. So the question is, what about if I have to choose, like I got two yellow light foods, I got chicken and I've got lean beef, which is better? If we were talking in 1960, I probably would have said, I'll go with the chicken because the fat content, the saturated fat content was lower and red meat's a little controversial, whereas chicken's not. But starting in about 1970, our chickens started getting fatter and fatter and fatter and fatter. So chickens now weigh two and a half times as much as they used to 40 or 50 years ago. And the fat content of chicken has exceeded the fat content of cow for about the last 20 years. 
So people that are eating chicken instead of red meat because they think it's better for them have been off the mark for about 20 years now. Um, I recommend in general, if you can afford it, eating chicken that is raised on a farm eating caterpillars and seeds and ants and that type of thing. And eating cow that's pasture raised instead of corn fed. The nutrient content of pasture raised cow exceeds that of corn fed cow. And the similar acids that you and fatty acids that you get in salmon start to look a lot like pasture-raised cow and very different from corn-fed cow. Now, the grass-fed beef is its just more expensive. And some people don't like the grassy flavor that it has. It's another area where our palates have been shifted away from what would have been historically normal. There's probably not a big difference between the chicken and the beef, so don't fret over that one. Yeah, eat some vegetables along with it. Yeah, so that's a question on ketogenic diet and carnivore diet. Let's go through some more red light foods first and then circle back to that. So what, are, what else do people come up with, with stuff that you should be eating either never or only with great intention? Canola oils, Canola oils made from the rape seed. And for some reason, rape oil didn't sell very well. <laughs> so they, they changed the name to canola oil. And uh, I'd say that, like, no one goes around eating rape berries. Like, it's just generally not a food that humans consume. So I don't eat much canola oil. There's actually not very good data on it one way or the other, so I don't have a strong opinion. Olive oil, for sure good. Canola oil, I don't know. Mike? The diet Yeah, so, so soda, like... Anything that you're, what can we drink that's a, that's a green light food? Water, maybe red wine, maybe beer, and maybe milk. Um, the more tea, the more tea that you drink in your life, the more, more likely you are to outlive everybody else. So, yes, tea is great. It, so for, and so, and the more coffee, the more black coffee you drink, the more likely you are to live longer. So black coffee and black or green tea, green light foods. As soon as you add something to it, you have at least shifted to yellow category. Can you go to the glycemic index slide for me? So this is how fast foods get metabolized once you eat them relative to pure glucose. So glucose is the fuel that we run on. So as I'm thinking and speaking and moving, I'm using glucose. Super starchy foods actually have a more rapid digestion than pure glucose does. So French baguette, which I really like, and baked potato and those other starches are really high. And then other foods are digested more slowly. Soda on here is high glycemic index. 
And if you can go to the glycemic index 2 for me. So low glycemic index foods are digested slowly. They don't require as much insulin production, and the energy that you get from them lasts a long time. All of the superfoods or green light foods are, tend to be lower glycemic index. All of the red light foods that we were talking about tend to be higher glycemic index. This is all your white foods, white rice, white flour, sugar, soda, etc. And the soda is bad on multiple levels. Soda increases risk of obesity. It increases risk of diabetes and it alters your palate so that foods that would otherwise be good for you, you don't like anymore. So people have said, and so well, instead of drinking Coke, which everybody kind of thinks is just probably not good for them, they drink Diet Coke instead, thinking that that's going to be better. But it's worse. Listen carefully. If you're drinking diet anything, it is worse for you than the non-diet version. There is no exception to this rule. There will never be an exception to this rule. So soda makes you fat and gives you diabetes. Diet soda is worse. It makes you fatter, gives you worse or higher diabetes. It's associated with increased risk of cholesterol, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, increased risk of strokes, increased risk of kidney failure. The only sweeteners that would be yellow light sweeteners, maple syrup, honey, So someone said agave. Agave's got a little bit lower glycemic index than other sweeteners, but it's made the same way that corn syrup's made. So I'm, I'm not a big agave fan as a result. Um, so I would, I would say I would just stick with honey. So if you want something sweet and you put honey on it, a little bit of honey goes a long way. And you got to put a lot of sugar in things to make them similarly sweet to the amount that you get from honey. All foods that are marketed to you as low-calorie, diet, fat-free, low-carb, they are all bad for you. They all have in common that they've got a food label. So general, all these superfoods, no label on those foods, right? All the green light foods have no labels. All the red light foods generally have a label on them. So if there's a label, you should already have your antennae up to say, like, hmm, I'm not sure this is a good idea. And the more marketing that's on the front of the package about how good for you it is, the less likely it is to actually be good for you. So be very cautious with that. I know right now that there are multiple people who don't believe what I just said about the diet soda or something like that. So if you have follow-up questions, come and talk to me. I wrote a book a while ago. I've got an entire chapter in the book to try and convince you otherwise. They're in this box up here, so feel free to grab one after we wrap up. I'm going to answer the question on the ketogenic and carnivores diet real quick. So the ketogenic diet is eating foods that are really low glycemic index. They have very little carbohydrate in them. Can you go to the, the four sources of calories slide for me? So I didn't make this system up. Like God made everything up. There's only four places for us to get calories. Carbs, protein, fat, alcohol, that's it. So a ketogenic diet, you basically get rid of the carbohydrate and eat the other three. Except within the alcohol quadrant, a lot of alcohol has carbohydrate in it. So you're not drinking beer and you're not drinking 
wine, you're going with more just booze at that point. And what happens is your glucose level comes down. You tend to feel less hungry because if we can go back to glycemic index two again, when you eat carbohydrates, especially stuff that gets digested quickly, what happens is blood sugar goes way up and then it comes way down. And the green line right there is homeostasis. That's where blood sugar normally operates. It's usually around 70 or 75. If you go below that, that produces the most profound hunger that happens. So that's like hangry, shaky, nauseated. I need something and I need it right now. This helps to explain why you're hungry quickly after eating Chinese food, for instance. That white rice, and then gone, and then hungry. I was like, I just ate an hour ago. How could I possibly be hungry again? This explains why on that. So the ketogenic diet stretches this out, keeps the blood sugar really low, and keeps you from being hungry, and tends to be associated with weight loss. So the thermodynamic law again comes in. You're eating less, blood sugar's low, so that fat that you've got stored, you have to get that out of storage and put it to use. That's what creates the weight loss. The carnivore's diet takes this one step further. Instead of just eating low glycemic index foods, we're going to eat just meat. And interestingly, people lose weight. They tend to get the squirts on it around day 10. And that lasts for around two weeks. And then it, and then it tends to go away. And most people, some people just have chronic diarrhea if they only eat meat, but most people, it lasts for a period of 10 or 14 days, and then you get past that. And I've had patients that have lost a lot of weight, gotten rid of their diabetes. It's mostly not because the meat is good. It's because the opportunity cost, right? They're choosing to eat meat instead of eating other red light foods. They're eating only yellow stuff, and they're getting rid of the red light foods, and they're getting health improvement as a result. They would be better off eating some meat in the yellow and then a whole bunch of vegetables at the same calorie content. Nutrient, the nutritional benefit and health benefits would be yeah, better. Yeah, that's too far into that's too far into the weeds. Yeah, ask me after. You had a question? Yeah, so the question is, is the, is the chocolate data that I've presented proven, or is it just Dove and Hershey's trying to sell you extra? Um, it's, it's proven. It, it lowers blood pressure. It's associated with weight loss, and it's associated with decreased risk of heart attack and stroke. So I don't think, there's, I don't think that's controversial. Now you've got to answer, like, what is, what is actually dark chocolate? So I am a, if I were king... If you were selling Hershey's Kisses, you would not be able to call it chocolate because the first ingredient in a Hershey's Kiss is sugar, not chocolate. You could call it chocolate-flavored sugar. <laughs> and even Dove Dark Chocolate, for instance, the first ingredient is still sugar. So that's just chocolatier-flavored sugar. So when I'm talking about dark chocolate, we're, we're up at 72% or higher. That's my definition. 
and the higher the better. So 100% would be better for you than the 72%, but that, that takes a unique palate to enjoy that. So if you think like, oh, maybe one of the things I will change as a result of this is I'm not currently eating dark chocolate. That's something I'd like to try. Start with something that's around 70 or 72%. Dark chocolate, different than other forms of chocolate, is, has a higher melting point. So when you put it in your mouth initially, it just tastes like no different than putting a crayon in your mouth. It has to melt before it releases its flavor profile. So put it in, don't chew it, and just let it sit there and then see what happens. And a piece of dark chocolate, when you put it in your mouth, the higher the cacao or fat content, the longer it's going to take to melt. It can literally take five minutes for a little piece of chocolate to melt in your mouth, and the flavor evolves or develops as it's in there. If you try that and you're like, ugh, I don't like this, I think the dark chocolate's good enough for you. If you put it in the refrigerator so it's extra hard, then chew it up and swallow it with your nose plugged and just get it into your stomach. How much is the right amount of dark chocolate? So the question is, how much is the right amount? I think like an, around an ounce a day. So if, you know, a, a standard size chocolate bar, that would be about half. Yes. Oh, good question. Um, go back to my superfoods, please, Brenton. Eggs make the list here. This has been so, uh, if people have been paying attention for a while, eggs historically were considered good for you, like a good basis for a healthy breakfast. And then, what, maybe the early 80s, like, oh, eggs are high in cholesterol, they're therefore bad for you and kind of fallen out of favor. And then the pendulum swung back a little bit. So like, what do we do with eggs? So I can tell you two eggs per day has been studied in a really good study where they did it in prospective fashion. So they had people and they had them eat two eggs and then measure, like what happens? Do people die? Do they get worse heart disease? Or do they live longer? What happens to their nutritional profiles? So two eggs, good. More than two eggs becomes controversial. Um, so if you, like, Ryan Nienaber, I think, eats 12 eggs. He's got chickens. He eats 12 eggs a day. And he's got these massive muscles he's got to support. So you've got to get protein in. So the question is, I think you could probably eat as many egg yolks as you want. That's just a simple protein. I mean, as many egg whites as you want. That's a simple protein. More than two egg yolks a day is associated with a very small increase in risk of cardiovascular events. So two eggs per day is good. More than two, I put the, the beyond two into a yellow light category. Yeah. Does it matter how the eggs are prepared? No, probably not. Um, I think that if you could go back, Brenton, to the First Corinthians slide for me. I'm happy to answer other questions after we wrap up. If we could do just a little bit more table discussion about what are one or two things that I'm going to change or take away from this at your table, and then feel free to loiter, have another cup of coffee, and hang out. Thanks for your attention, everyone.